Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lala. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And on this episode, it's going to be just the three of us. We are going to do our first official questions and answers show this week. Uh, some of the questions we'll be talking about will be on advertising during the holidays, if group promos and reader magnets, magnets still work, when to pay for audiobooks, and investing when you're actually getting to the point where you're making six figures. Uh, before we jump into that stuff, do you guys have any news that you would like to share? Uh, sure. Uh Thanks to circumstances, which I'm not sure if I've mentioned on the show before, um, I ended up with a really fun and high-quality cover for a book that I wasn't intending to release wide. Uh, I have a Patreon, and the, Patre- the point of the Patreon is to make short stories financially viable for me, because the income from the Patreon pretty much exactly offsets the edit and cover. So I budget like 100 bucks for the covers, which usually doesn't mean a, uh, a release-ready cover. But the cover that I came up with for this one book ended up being five months worth of covers. Like I just released four covers without a, four books with a basic cover and got a really, really high quality one for this because the artist became quote, uh, dedicated and engaged to the, to the dragon that was on the cover. So, uh, I got a really good cover and I was like, I can't just have this in my Patreon. So I decided to do a full release. So I had an unexpected 99 cent novella release, uh, just a few days ago, a few more days ago for you than for me, because we're recording this earlier than you're hearing it, obviously. And uh, I have also started to revise Book of Deacon 6, which is the first of the three Book 6s I'm hoping to release next year. I've started outlining Free Wrench 6, which is the second of the Book 6s I'm hoping to release next year. And uh, by the time you hear this, I will have returned from a board game convention in Philadelphia, which I'm going to uh, uh, PAX Unplugged. So that's, that's all my news. Um, and I've, uh, I finished editing, uh, Evening Storm, the second book in my Midnight Chronicles, and I published it because it was up for pre-order, but because my editor decided to go get multiple pulmonary embolisms, uh, it still has not been professionally edited. And so I told my readers today, I wasn't planning on telling them, but I told them today, I was like, if you guys want it, you can go grab it. Cause I know some of you don't care about a few typos here and there, and I don't normally have to make huge changes, but Uh, And then I'll just let them know when to go update it because you know how Amazon lets you do all those updates and things like that. Anyway, so yeah, um, I started dictating this third book in the series um, today. I got the outline done yesterday and Monday and looking forward to that. This series has been a lot of fun. It's been, as a couple of my readers have said, it's the most complex series I've ever written. I don't do multiple viewpoints, but instead this guy's like, I'm weaving in between another series I wrote and then while well, he's trying not to kill people from the other series. So anyway, um, and then also my course discount is still going live. For those who are interested, you can enter in yellow, the coupon code at selfpublishedoncourses.com to get 30% off my courses. And thank you to those who have already. Uh, welcome aboard my crazy train. <laughs> now, do you have any thoughts on... That's very... Uh, I'm sad to hear about about your editor. I hope she's doing better. Because um, I'm actually the same way. I'm kind of like, I don't have my pre-order set like six months out and the book edited like four months before the pre-order. You know, I, I'm often, uh, as soon as it's ready, I want to release it. But do you have any regrets of like, wish you give yourself a little more time for emergencies when things come up? 
Um, I gave myself lots of time for this one. <laughs> I do better with tight deadlines. And um, like my readers are really forgiving and my books are usually clean, you know, so they're not like, not clean. Well, they're that too. But there's not a whole lot of errors in them. And so um, I, I don't know, like I've set the whole entire series up for pre-order. So I'm pretty much if one book track deep, like if I lose a leg, I'm going to be like screwed <laughs> or something. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I stayed on track pretty decently. Um, I just forgot to plan in for uh, that trip to Vegas for the business masterclass. And so that put me about a week behind. And then my kids got get the flu like three times in the last two months. So, um, so no, I don't, I don't honestly regret it actually, which maybe I should, maybe I should be more serious about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's kind of a fluke thing, but it does seem like probably every once in a while, something like that is just likely to happen. And I, I wish I was a little, you know, I could get ahead. I always feel like I'm like catching, you know, struggling to make all the dates I've set with my editor. And I think I'm just a little too ambitious. And so that may be something for myself to work on in the new year. Um, for my news, I've just finished the second novel in my upcoming urban fantasy series and sent it off to my beta readers. Also got the first one back from my editor and sent that off to my typo hunters. There's actually no hurry with this. I don't have, I'm getting custom illustrations for the covers and, and they're going to be a while. I just, I needed a break. I think I mentioned from my sci-fi. And so I decided to go ahead and get these. I was just going to do one novel, but I've been on a roll. So I did the second one and I'm going to outline the third one and start on that. Uh, so I'll have that whole launch ready to go about two months early. Well, and, and then that'll give me time to, to just relax with the sci-fi. Cause I, I've mentioned that's probably going to be another like 120 to 150,000 word book. So that is too much for me to do <laughs> in a month, uh, with my sanity intact. So I'll have a little bit of time, but I will launch the new series as I'm working on that. And you know, that should, uh, well, hopefully it'll be a nice boost in income. We'll see. Uh, New folks may not know it, but I'm jumping into a new subgenre for me with urban fantasy. Um, in other news, I was interviewed on the Spa Girls podcast. That is what they call themselves. It's self-publishing, self-published authors. Um, and that was a lot of fun. We did the interview uh, with Trudy J at the 20 Books Conference. And I'll go ahead and put the link in the show notes in case you want to check it out. We talked about marketing, launching series, doing cross-genre stuff. Uh, covered quite a bit of good stuff, I think. And one more bit of news, not about myself. They just popped in my inbox today from Nink. They are, uh, I thought it might be interesting to you guys. They, they're kind of doing a beta thing with Lighthouse Insurance Group to start offering US-based Nink members uh, access to affordable health insurance off, uh, options. And, and this is kind of a trial for them. And I, it's interesting because I know a lot of authors, that's one of the big concerns when you quit the day job and suddenly you lose all your benefits and you have to buy your own health insurance, which you can do. And I've done, you know, the whole time I've been self-employed now for more than 15 years. And, but I've definitely watched it climb. You know, you get a little older, you get a few more issues and, uh, they just, you know, even if nothing else changes, they like to sneak up the rates and you got to go shop for a new plan. And I don't know if, you know, for those of you with a family, also, you know, kids that got to be on the insurance and if your husband or wife is also self-employed, it's, it's a very big investment. So I, I know a lot of authors are wanting that from like SIFWA. I think that's something that's been asked for and that the various writers groups. So I'll just be curious and we'll watch it and see if anything comes of that and if it's a good deal. 
to you guys. Let's just, I guess we'll just jump in with the questions. These are kind of curated from our Facebook group, our new Six Figure Authors Facebook group. I think we have what, 11? <laughs> Maybe 11 14. members. 14. All right. But three are us. <laughs> oh, so, dang it. <laughs> so we have 11. <laughs> um, are you going to explain to YouTube viewers why your name is Joseph Lalo? Uh, Joe actually said it doesn't show up on YouTube. Dang it. But we're, are I you am, sure? Because it did before. Oh, that was when you guys did YouTube Live. I think Google Hangouts it did. Uh, yeah, I am a learning. I am in the captain's chair this week, learning how to record the show <laughs> just in case. Because uh, I think Joe has a one day he's going to miss in January. And I was like, well, let's just make sure either Andrea or I could do it. So I'm, I'm recording. So right now, for those of us in this chat, it shows us two Joe Lalos and an Andrea. We, we got it, guys. We're not confused. All right. So first two questions come from the Facebook group. We're giving those priority to people who actually come and join our group and ask questions there. And Matt asks, I had the audio version done of my first in series. And while I was happy with the narrator at the time, because this was my first audiobook, the reviews have not been kind to him. I'm coming up on a year since release and decided I wanted to finish out the series, but I've only sold about 25 audiobooks in that time. Another narrator said it was best to either have the original, finish the series, or buy him out and start over with a new narrator. However, I chose the royalty share option as I don't have the budget to pay a narrator up front and I'm stuck with a seven-year contract. What are my options? Walk away, buy out. I don't really have a working relationship with the original narrator. Okay. Oh, so that, that's for us to answer right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I actually was just going to say, I'm going to let Joe and Lindsay answer because I haven't done audiobooks, but can't wait to hear what they say. Uh, yeah, right. So having a poorly reviewed first in series can be a bit of an anchor. Uh, if you're going for an audiobook specific audience cuz i mean if you if, if these are people that only buy audiobooks and they're only going to see a poorly reviewed audiobook in the, uh, in the store so that can be an issue um if i were in your situation i can't tell you exactly what to do because i don't know there is necessarily one answer but and if i were in your situation i wouldn't worry too much about sticking with the same narrator like if you have a very successfully narrated book there are people who like we've had on on other podcasts talk about there are people who are loyal to narrators will go and listen to other books narrated by the same narrator because they love narrators. If you're getting bad reviews on this narrator, presumably they don't have a very strong following. So there's not that impetus to continue using the same narrator. And I understand the value of having a consistent narrator through a series. But again, that's not really an issue here because not a lot of people have picked up the first book. So the, there's not a lot of people who are going to have to grapple with the change in narrators from one to another. So if in your situation, I would just pick another narrator uh, and continue on as I have with a new narrator that is perhaps more closely selected, more carefully selected for quality. Uh, if you're really a stickler, you want, it, you want the books to sound similar, then select your narrator to have a similar delivery to the previous one, just overall improved. But uh, uh, Again, since you've got so few books sold, I don't think that you're going to run into any of the issues that a larger series, a more successful series would have with changing narrators. I don't think it's necessarily worth buying the person out uh, in this situation. I'm not even sure how that would happen with uh, the royalty share. I'm sure things are complicated in that way. I think I'm going to disagree with you, Joe, because I think if they listen to the first one and it's that bad, and I don't know if it's that bad or it's just the reviews are not that great, people aren't going to give book two a shot. I think they're just going to say, oh, that sucks. I'm not 
going to move on with this. So I, I definitely see the dilemma. Um, first off, my question is like, how many reviews are on there? Is it, do you feel that it's honest reflection? I mean, you've said you only sold 25. So are there like three, three reviews? And if so, is it possible you could boost up the review average? If the, if, if you don't feel it's poorly done, uh, maybe you could get some coupon codes from Audible uh, or ACX, you know, ask for another 25. If you've already used your 25, they might give it to you and um, distribute it. Try to get some new reviews so you can bring up the average. Um, but if you agree and you feel that the narration is not very good, um, I actually mentioned, I answered in the Facebook group, one possibility would be to put together like a three book box set if you have that, if you have like that many out in the series. And then you'd basically be circumnavigating the book one. You just put all your promo, promo efforts into the box set. And I think ACX is even going to make you take down the one when you put up the box set. So that, uh, you know, it's going to be iffy because you did the royalty split. You're probably going to have to ask ACX and see if you could do that. Um, but my other thing is I'm wondering, uh, is this the best use of your money and your time? If you're not selling enough eBooks to cover the cost of just financing this on your own, I'm thinking your series might not be selling well enough that you're ever going to earn out on the audio. I usually recommend people be making about 500 eBook sales a month of a, you know, at least of a book one before investing in making audiobooks. That's sort of about the level where like you can expect to reasonably break even. And that's really quite a lot of ebooks. Uh, if you're selling that many, you're, you know, you're pretty up there in the Amazon rankings. And, um, I, cause it's not like you're automatically going to earn out on a series. It's a pretty big investment. Uh, you know, you see kind of what the problem is if you do the royalty split and, that doesn't really pan out. You're just like, well, that's it. I'm stuck. Because I think ACX is not going to want to screw over that narrator. So you may have a problem even with the, the box set idea. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Like, when would you uh, invest in audiobooks for a series? Uh, in my case, I, I've invested, I have actually paid for two of my audiobooks. And uh, both of them were far enough removed from the initial book sales that I sort of started with one hand behind my back because they were not ranking high enough to really get a lot of organic sale. So in both cases, one of them, the shortest one already paid for has has paid for itself, but it took literally years. And the second one, which was much, much longer and therefore cost much, much more, uh, still hasn't paid itself back. Uh, it's close now, but still hasn't paid itself back. So chances are, even at my current level of success, if I was self-funding all of my audiobooks, I wouldn't be doing audiobooks right now. Uh, so. Yeah, like I would, I would, as it stands, however, most of my audiobooks are being done uh, traditionally by a company called Books in Motion, which makes the cost negative, makes the cost, I make some money up front. So in that case, if you can get back to one, then by all means. But at my current state right now, I probably wouldn't be focusing on audiobooks. So if you compare yourself to me, then you might not be doing it either. Uh, also, you know, when you do the royalty split, they're going to look at your sales ranking and like, see, are they going to earn any money on this deal? And you're probably going to find you have a pretty limited pool of people who are actually going to be interested unless they see that, you know, your book has over 100 reviews on Amazon. And it seems to be selling. So also something to keep in mind. It's like, it's nice to have the audio audiobooks, but they do represent either money invested to pay for it or a lot of time, like on the narrator's behalf. Okay, moving on to John's question. And this is funny, not funny, but um, we just recorded a show about <laughs> group promotions and reader magnets. So uh, John is saying, 
he's asking, have we reached the end of the effectiveness of growing your list via reader magnet group promotions? I've seen diminishing returns in terms of getting people to actually read the reader magnet and go on to buy the book. I have people who are signing up for my list again and again as they see the reader magnet in subsequent group promotions. Um, or is it merely a numbers game and then for every 1,000 to 2,000 inorganic, as Patty Jansen calls them, subscribers, you can only expect maybe a small percentage to actually go on and read your books? Uh, I think it's very much a numbers game. Uh, inorganic subscribers will always be less faithful and dedicated than organic ones. So any promotion really is you casting a very wide net and hoping you'll find up with a few, wind up with a few keepers, which is why having a good backlist and a solid way to lead people through it is such a high priority because then you can afford to make good on a fairly small return on, on investment from a, from a promo, uh, because there's just so much money to be made and so much just value to be had from the, the few people that actually stick around. So I think they're still effective. Um, more to the, I think they're as effective as any promo can be, which is to say if they're run well, they, they can still uh, be of a lot of value to you. But uh, you, you have to sort of set your expectations correctly. You're not going to retain most of the people who you find in that way. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, definitely. They've especially gone down in effectiveness, but they're still decent. I mean, back in the gold rush of you know list building with other authors, you'd get like 20,000 and... Quite a few of them would stick around, you know, but um, I still do list building things with other authors, but not nearly as frequently just because they're not as effective. And I also don't want to burn out my readers because when you're doing them, you're having to share those with your lists as well. And so I go through phases, I'll do them for like a few months, um, and then I won't do them for a whole year, and then I'll do them again. Um, but I do, it's, I found it's more productive for me personally to do my own list building techniques through my own giveaways where I'm the only author participating in. So I'll give away Kindle Paperwhite targeting specific readers through Facebook ads and offering a reader magazine to everyone who enters. Um, but basically, what, like Joe, I've noticed what you've mentioned that some people sign up over and over again, which is kind of, you know, like what, whatever. But um, it bothers me a little bit, but not enough for me to stop doing the giveaways because, you know, if they can't remember who they've signed up for, then it's not going to... I don't, yeah, I don't know that it's going to bother me too much when they unsubscribe, which they probably will if they're doing it regularly. Um, but with any um, list building strategy, you need to convert them from casually interested readers to super fans. And um, this, like Joe was saying, your backlist and having a way to push people through them. And so I obviously going to recommend having a solid automation sequence. And depending on where you find them, I recommend having separate automation sequences because you want to tailor it as much as possible to them. And so like your organic readers will have a different automation sequence from those who find you through specific giveaways. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think what Patty said, she was actually on our old show, Sci-Fi and Fantasy Marketing Podcast, uh, she, that she puts these guys she gets from these group promos on a different list than like the people who sign up from the back of the book and who are proven buyers. And that's how I would do it too if I was going to do this. I, I will say it's been a long time since I've done any of these um, group promotions. And even when I did it, it was more promoting a box set rather than uh, doing like the story origins kind of model that we were talking about last week. And so that's what I would do is make a separate list for these people and treat them like freebie seekers, bargain hunters. That's perfectly fine. It's probably the same folks that subscribe to like book, uh, book club. And 
it, rather than just going straight from like, well, did you enjoy my reader magnet? Here, buy the book for five bucks. Maybe you give them book two for 99 cents, you know, or maybe you let them know when you've got a five book box set for 99 cents that you're plugging right now because you're also, you know, trying to get the Kindle Unlimited page reads. So you might just kind of reserve this list for, uh, when you've got deals and you want more sales because that helps with your rankings and such on the stores. But, um, maybe they're not going to be your super fans or only a small portion of them. Uh, you can do like what Andrea is saying, you know, kind of bring them along have the automation sequence. And then eventually maybe they get moved over to the list of actual proven buyers and they do become fans. But I, I do think it's like you were saying, you know, maybe you need a thousand or 2000 to, uh, find 10 real good fans in, in that group. Uh, another thing is if you're doing the same reader magnet every time, like you're giving away the same prequel novella over and over and over, and it's the same people that are, you know, signing up for these things, uh, that could cause you to lose some effectiveness. Same as if you, you know, promote the same book one on BookBub over and over again, even though they're BookBub, you're still not going to get the same results. They only have so much turnover and, and so many readers out there in each genre. So I would say freshen it up, you know, write a new story or make something else that's for sale, take that and start using it for some promos. And uh, last thing I would say is if you have the option for with these group promos and newsletter swaps to be in it with authors who have a list full of, full of book buyers, like, you know, somebody who sells well and you're pretty sure their list, you know, you can't interrogate people like, hey, where, where are you getting the people on your list? But if their list is like 40,000 people, you know, they're probably also got them for, through like, you know, a, a lot of advertising, a lot of giving away freebies. But if they're like, hey, I have only 6,000 people on my list and you look at their sales rankings and they do really well as an author, that's probably like a really good list of proven buyers. So you're going to have a different audience that your stuff is going out to rather than just necessarily uh, the people that go for all the free promos. All right. Do you guys have any more thoughts on that before we move on? No thoughts. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> uh, the next is more of a comment from Kev. He says, I'd be interested in hearing about how your editing process has changed as you've become more experienced. Um, so I don't need nearly as many revisions now as I did in the beginning. Uh, I've always been a fast writer because, you know, I was a paralegal and I did technical writing when I, when I was in college. Um, and so it took me about six weeks to write my first book once I decided to actually do it. But revisions were really, really t tedious. And with me doing, you know, six to eight hours of revisions a day for the first year and a half, I mean, that's how long it took that first book. Um, anyway, so yeah, I need to go through my books multiple times. And one thing that as a beginner, beginning, beginner writer, beginning writer, <laughs> whatever, um, I found that when I was, I'd come across something that was challenging or it was, I didn't know how to resolve. And so I was like, I'll just fix this in the next time through instead of making myself do it right then. And that actually slowed me down quite a bit. I ended up having to do a lot more rounds of revisions. And so now I don't let myself do that. You know, I, I make myself actually work out the problems in that revision, in that, that round. Um, anyway, so, um, one thing I have noticed, I think this is pretty common. Actually, it is very common. The more you write, the better you get and the faster the revisions go. And so things are much, much easier now. And I use, you know, very few revisions now. As for me, my old, like my original editing process was to pants a story. I wrote my first four novels without any outlines. And I had endless revisions as a result. Uh, nowadays, I put a lot more time into the outlines. And as a result, the uh, the, the process is much more streamlined. Uh, I write the whole book from beginning to end. Uh, I don't write multiple books at a time. I've tried it. It's I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, 
And then I minimize interruptions to the actual flow of writing by leaving notes to myself about edits that will need to be made in the future. Um, I give them a searchable tag so that I, first off, don't leave them in the final book and second, can go through without having to, to dig them out. Uh, and then I do a revision in which I read through, address all the notes and clean things up. And that goes to the beta readers. And unless something is horribly wrong with it, uh, the beta readers will give me notes that I apply and then send it to my editor. And then when I get it back from the editor, I apply the editor's edits. And uh, sometimes I do a, a typo uh, pass where I'll send it to a, a final reader. Sometimes I just send it straight from the editor because I have found that there's about an equal, equal chance that something slipped past the editor and the typo hunter. <laughs> it's amazing how evasive some typos can be. So yeah, overall, it used to be I had like six passes on my own to, to get something to the point where I would give it to an editor. And now there's like six passes total, including the editor and all the other steps. So the whole thing has gotten a lot leaner. I also did many revisions on those first couple of novels. And those are even the first couple of novels I actually published. Before that, there were many that were written or partially written that never really got to that really polishing stage. So some of it is just practice. And, you know, when you're learning and you're in a critique group, especially in the beginning or taking classes or, or you know, whatever you're doing to learn the craft, you're really conscious about a lot of stuff and, and kind of sitting there and looking at each sentence. And eventually you kind of internalize, you know, both your style, you become more comfortable with your voice and don't second guess yourself. And you just kind of the rules that you're, you know, trying to write lean, clean sentences for clarity. Uh, it gets a little internalized after a while. I, I definitely found outlining has kept me from having to do things like rewrite entire chapters or, you know, in the beginning is very common for me to have a file of like cut, cut stuff. I, that was the classy name I gave it. I never wanted to like just throw it away, but I was like, well, maybe I'll use this again later. And, you know, and there'd be pages worth of stuff by the end of the book. Uh, it's really uncommon for me to have that now. Uh, it, and it's a little bit practice, a little bit getting cleaner with writing the first drafts, having them be closer to the final thing. Uh, I usually do write the full draft without any has any editing, any going back, uh, just to get it done. And then I make a couple notes to myself if I'm writing along and I realize, okay, I've added this small theme or subplot or something that I need to layer in earlier. Then I just have those notes to myself. And when I do my editing pass, as I'm kind of tidying up the sentence and, and you know trying to get rid of repetition, I will address those things that need to be kind of woven in as foreshadowing or whatever you want to call it. And then, uh, so I only do one editing pass now, and then I send it to my beta readers. And I should explain, uh, for me, my beta readers are actually really good friends who have read all of my stuff. They're avid readers, and they've often remember things that I've forgotten, or they have areas of expertise that kind of complement my deficiencies. Uh, and, and that's why I, I use these folks. I probably wouldn't at this stage just like randomly use people out of a Facebook group or something like these are really good friends and I, I trust their opinions. And I'm, they're not usually asking me like for humongous rewrites. It's usually things like, uh, like my one friend is a medical in the medical field. So she'll be like, Hey, your magical cancer is total BS. You need to have it say this, this, and this. Or, you know, my other friend's a dead database programmer. So she's like, Oh, your, your computer stuff is, is not working here. So those are the kinds of things. And, and at that point, I'll make whatever little fixes based on their comments, if I agree, and send it off to my editor, who is just uh, not just, she's great. But, uh, you know, I pay her for, it's basically proofreading. I'm not looking for somebody to do development, 
developmental editing. That's why I did all the years with the critique groups and I used beta readers. Uh, it's very expensive if you want to do developmental editing. So I, I try to encourage writers to use critique groups and stuff to get to that level, uh, just learning the ropes themselves and being pretty confident that they're putting a good story together. All right, next question is from Bella. I started dictating when wrist, arm, sh and shoulder pain was too much. I took to dictation in about two hours, so I think I'm a rare duck. The problem now is that I started dictating doing contemporary romance and knocked out 5,000 words an hour. But now that I'm dictating historical regency romance, I'm doing 3,000 words an hour at best. How can I get those big word counts that Andrea gets? What tips or tricks does she have? And I, I answered this on the the blog. So Bella gets to hear it twice. <laughs> but basically, so um, my one, I was wondering if, you know, I mean, Regency romance is more dense than contemporary. There's, there's the lingo and, and the, basically everything, the whole is, it's different, obviously. I mean, Regency period is different from contemporary period. Um, and so uh, one thing that I was going to suggest was you could focus on having it be more modern and just to get the words out and because, you know, getting it on paper is the most important part and then tailor it to the region to Regency in revision. Um, the extra 2000 words per hour might be worth the extra work on the back end. Um, but how to, um, just a couple tips on how to get those bigger word counts. And I don't get them every single time. It depends on, you know, a lot of things like if, if I'm even slightly hungry or if I'm a little too tired or if I'm not entirely sure where I'm going. Um, the, the things that help me the best is to make sure I'm in a good position. I'm not thirsty. I'm, I'm not tired. I'm not hungry. And then I just, I just tell myself to say things because, you know, sometimes I'm like, I think too hard over it. And I've noticed that later on down the road, I don't never, I don't never, I never notice when um, I'm struggling to find my words or when I just spit them out while I'm dictating. And so, and then also having a clear idea of where I'm going helps like outlines and, and, you know, just thinking about it ahead of time. If you're a pantser, then I don't know, whatever gets the words on paper for you best. And then I've also found that any movement, so like pacing, uh, walking back and forth helps keep me better on task. And then I also keep quiet little hand toys on hand, um, hand toys on hand <laughs> to play with while dictating. So, and I do that while I'm recording with the podcast. I'm showing those who are watching. I've got this little purple squishy thing that came from the purple mattress company when we got our purple our purple mattress from the purple mattress company. Um, and it's, it's quiet. I just sit and squish around with it. And then I use, I've got like fidget spinners, you know, just just to keep my hands busy. Um, I would sit and draw, but then I'd have my head down the whole time while we're recording. So anyway, um, but I do things like that while I'm dictating. You know, I, I even do doodle sometimes, just random, not things that do, you know, that don't take my brain away from the writing, but it's just anything to help keep my mind focused. And then that actually keeps me going faster and keeps me on task. Yeah, I think there are actually some studies that you something about like forward forward momentum or doing a task that doesn't really require your conscious brain, like driving between two lanes on the highway. You know, it seems to be really conducive to good creativity and output. All right, next question is from Sarah. I'd like to know more about how you look after your earnings once you become a six-figure author. Um, I won't name names here, but <laughs> what tips do you have for future authors or things you wish you'd known earlier? Pensions, savings, emergencies. I have a dog roaming around, so I'll pass it off to you guys. Okie doke. Uh, the first thing you need to make sure of, and this is one that like can really catch you off guard, is make sure you're keeping track of what you're going to need to pay for taxes. 
because uh, if you've not been making a significant amount of money from self-employment, then you would not know that self-employment uh, taxes are much higher than, than regular taxes. And also, if you've not been making a lot of money from self-employment, you're not accustomed to having to pay taxes or you're accustomed to having it taken out of your uh, account already. So make sure you have the money to pay your taxes at the end of the year or quarterly, which is what we end up doing. Uh, other than that, I recommend having a retirement account of some kind, an IRA. I, I would tell you what kind of IRA, but I have a financial guy, and therefore I don't even know what kind of IRA. I just write him a check it's every probably year. probably a SEP IRA. Sounds about right. I know that I had <laughs> one of those. Um, so yeah, you get one of those. And uh, aside from giving you retirement, that also it has tax benefits because it reduces your effective income for the year. I'm not financial enough to tell you all the details on it. Um, I would say also that uh, if you can invest in something that has that is persistent and has a stable and potential income generating uh, aspect like real estate, that's a great idea. Aside from the house that I am currently in, uh, I've never really had enough cash on hand for that sort of investment. But you can also do an investment account, which there are other types of IRAs that are not retirement IRA, IRAs that uh, are good for that. So I went with that option, and I, I so that my money is not completely just sitting in a bank account making pitiful interest. It's then sitting in an investment account making less pitiful interest. Um, don't forget to keep at least some of the money in a semi-liquid state. Uh, I like to keep a war chest for book expenses, so that even if everything goes horribly wrong, I have the next two releases worth of book money available to me. I also keep a savings account for emergencies, and. Um, yeah. Unless you're blessed, you're eventually going to have a lean period. I'm currently in a lean period. So uh, having something to draw upon when you're not making necessarily the money that you hope you would be making is super handy. And it, there's nothing more painful than having to like, pull it out of one of those long-term accounts. Uh, and so far, I haven't had to do it because I've planned accordingly. So that's what I say money-wise. I'm also in a lean period right now, you know, having the baby, not releasing anything for 10 months. Uh, and, and I definitely agree with Joe. You, ne you need to make sure you've got money on hand for emergencies and for when you do have those downtimes. Um, I wouldn't honestly wait until you reach six figures to start putting money aside. Um, not necessarily investing, but making sure that you've got, and especially as authors, I mean, we, you can't ever predict. I, I've seen authors who are super successful have a whole year, even a year and a half of really bad royalties. And so I, I would just, I would save enough for, and this is, you know, I mean, gradually it has to happen gradually. It's not going to be something you'll be able to do until you are making a lot of money, but save enough for like a year, even um, just in case everything falls apart and you don't want to have to go back to you know, you know full-time job. Um, but start as little, uh, I mean, start little in the beginning when you're not making a whole lot, you know, save $25 a month for maybe for book stuff and $25 a month for business. Um, that's the same thing for personal and book. <laughs> um, and then because you'll probably reach a point where the business is going to need more money and you don't want to have to take from, you know, person, the personal side of your life and your personal side of life usually will take from the book side. But I mean, just just so that you're saving something a little bit every month. And then as you get more into the bigger figures, increase that amount. And then once you're doing, you know, six figures or whatever, start the actual investments into those, those ROTs and the IRAs and all of that. Um, but yeah, and then also watch your money closely. Like even when you're making a lot of money, a, a, a money leak can really hurt you. And um, don't allow things to leak even when you're making a lot of money. 
All right. And we should probably have started off with the fact that we're just telling you what we do. We'll try to get somebody on the show, maybe Joe Solari. I know he's done a bunch of podcasts uh, that actually does this for a living and advises authors and handles their accounts and has some good suggestions. Um, I would say first, pay off any credit cards you have, especially if they're like 20% interest. It doesn't really make sense to invest in anything um, until you paid those off because you're never going to get that much interest from an investment unless you're doing some gambling, some pretty big speculating, and then you could just as likely lose it all. Also, if you have any student loans left, uh, you know, that's a really good thing to pay off when you're getting some extra income in. Uh, those are the one thing that, at least here in the US, that no matter what happens, you can never get rid of them. You can file bankruptcy, you can foreclose on a house, but your student loans always going to have them. So, you know, until you get that paid off, it's kind of like having a hatchet over your head. So that's a good thing to do with any extra income. And then a lot of people, a lot of indie authors I've talked to just feel, you know, I think anybody, if you're self-employed and you have really variable income, which I certainly uh, know mine will, I'll have like a great month. And then if I don't release for a few months, it'll drop down. And you're just, it's kind of amazing how much of a swing you can have. Um, you know, they feel really comfortable once they get their house paid off. So that is something to consider. For investing, I actually, I would recommend if at all possible, you try to cultivate an interest in kind of, there's like three ways to go. There's a stock market, there's owning your own business, uh, and then possibly investing in a, like a friend's business. If you really know the numbers and it makes sense, you know, you basically, you become a uh, angel investor at that point. Uh, and then there's real estate. I'm a big fan of real estate. I'm pretty contrarian when it comes to retirement accounts and the stock market. It is possible to get a SEP RA that will allow you to uh, invest in real estate or buy gold, things like that. Um, you have to really look around. And one thing that's kind of worth thinking about as authors, we're a little different than wage earners who uh, most retirement accounts exist to under the assumption that you are going to stop earning income at age 65 when you retire and everything you get after that is just going to come from your, you know, whatever investments you have. So the assumption is that you're going to be in a lower tax bracket after you retire. So retirement accounts today is set up for you to, to defer taxes. So you're not paying tax this year, but you're going to pay tax when you retire. You have to start taking those, uh, whatever you have in there, you have to start taking it at a certain age out of there. Um, and as authors, we're kind of in, in an interesting place where we may actually have a lot more money and more valuable IP if we're career authors after 30 or 40 years doing this. Um, as an example, I don't know what Dean Koontz got for his first book, like in the 70s, but I'm going to assume probably like a $5,000 advance. And there was just an article, he accepted a contract with Amazon for like 4 or $5 million. And he's in his 70s now. So he's taking his retirement income. So he's going to have to pay taxes on that retirement income at the same rate, you know, whatever 40% that he's paying on those millions he's getting. So it's not like we're all going to be rich when we retire. But uh, as IP creators, it's just worth considering. Like I actually like to take, pay taxes on stuff today and not have to worry about like, what the tax rate is going to be when I retire. And what if I am making more than and then I didn't really win anything. So, uh, And I'm also not a big fan of the stock market. Um, most of, there's a lot of reasons. The big one is you don't control it whatsoever. You're completely at the whim. Other than you can pick your stocks. And most people don't even do that. They just get an index fund or a mutual fund and somebody else is picking them. And then you're invested in these companies that if you had a half idea what these people do, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you, you're like objecting to the CEOs making $20 million and the, the you know, the 
entry level people making less than minimum wage, you're backing all that if you're an investor in this company. So just something to think about. Uh, you know, when you with your own your own business or your own real estate, you control it hundred percent. Um, you also can't if you buy fo- if you buy stocks, you can't get financing for them. If you buy real estate, you can finance it. You need twenty percent down usually for an investment property, but the bank will pay the other eighty percent, and you still control it hundred percent. You've got a tenant in there that's paying for your mortgage. Uh, you don't want to do it in a market where you're speculating and you can't get the the rent to cover the mortgage. And I fully admit this is a really hard time to find markets right now where you can buy with twenty percent down and actually have the the renter pay off the mortgage and ideally a property management company because most of us writers are not going to want to like go fix toilets in the middle of the night. Um, but when, you know, with real estate, you also get depreciation. It's sort of the only tax friendly thing out there. Um, you're not getting any perks from the stock market, right? Um, nobody's paying you to use your stocks uh, with real estate. You, like I said, you've got a tenant that's paying to you and paying off your property for you. And lastly, when you sell stocks, you pay taxes on what you earn. Whereas if you sell an investment real estate property and you do it the right way, you can roll it over into a new property. Um, as long as you, you know, there's stuff you got to do it within a certain amount of days and stuff. But like you could go sell a house and go into a four unit apartment building and um, not pay taxes on the sale of the house. So there's a lot of, you, I mean, you've heard it. To go listen to some of the real estate podcasts out there if you're all interested in it, it may, Take less money than you think to get into stuff. Uh, sometimes you can't do it in the market where you live if you're in an expensive metro area. But um, the Creating Wealth podcast with Jason Hartman, that's a pretty good one to listen to. He he's very has a lot of opinions on things that I don't agree with and you don't necessarily agree with. But he just he preaches he practices what he preaches and he preaches the same thing you know for like the last ten years, which is buy single family rental properties in markets that make sense. So if you're interested, you can get into that. I will get off my real estate soapbox now and my stock market soapbox and just, you know, but I do think that it's worth getting interested in something, if at all possible, because nobody's ever going to manage your money as good as you can. It's just like being an author trying to find somebody to do ads for you. Nobody cares as much as you do about how your books sell and about the return on your investment from your ads. Okay, sorry, that was like way more than um, probably the listener wanted. <laughs> and my co-host is probably like falling asleep. So we'll move on to the next question from Vale. I'd like to hear a little bit about mastermind groups. Most of the big authors are already in secret masterminds, but small authors with only two to eight books out are starting, th- starting to form their own to help each other out. Um, sometimes you learn best from what your peers are trying to do rather than from someone much farther up the author career path. What sorts of things have you all found useful for masterminds? How do they work best? And what would you watch out for? Um, this was actually really interesting to me, this question, because I've been I've been thinking a lot about masterminds a lot lately. Um, I've been in a couple that were really fantastic. And um, I'm going to be starting some soon, probably maybe towards the end of spring. It just depends on how things go, you know, with with um, kids (laughs) and everything. But what I plan on doing is I'll have an approval process in place and I'll charge four or 500 a month for two hours every week. Um, I'd expect the authors participating to be willing to brainstorm together and, and work through problems and come up with ideas plus follow through. And then I also plan to learn from them too, because basically everybody has something that, that they can teach. Um, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I strongly recommend you don't join a mastermind unless these sorts of things are in place. 
because having your time wasted is a huge concern, but even worse is becoming discouraged and unmotivated from interactions. So if you join the wrong mastermind uh, and people in there don't follow through, they waste your time, they goof off, they talk about things that are unrelated, um, or if they just, you know, don't apply anything and, and yeah, it can be very discouraging and very unmotivating. Um, and if the mastermind is free and there isn't an approval process in place, there's a risk of joining the wrong one. Um, if you're doing a mastermind with authors who are all on the same level, someone will need to spearhead it and that someone should have an approval process in place. Uh, there needs to be commitment so people don't blow it off, which is why I recommend money being involved um, in some way. Um, it's not necessary and the amount of money can be lower than what I charge, but uh, do consider it. Um, if there isn't a mentorship, mentorship involved, the money could go into like a pool or something for advertising and running joint promotions. Um, okay, so don't work with someone who isn't serious about success and who doesn't have motivation, ambition, and drive. And let's see, um, as far as how they work best or how best they work, uh, English, uh, it depends on the goals of those participating. Um, it could be a writing mastermind. It could be a marketing mastermind, et cetera. It just depends on what you all want. Uh, you can meet monthly, weekly, or twice a month, et cetera. Mine is going to, I'm planning on mine going for about two months with weekly meetings. Um, and, but a lot of people, their masterminds will go longer than that. I have heard of people having masterminds that'll last for a whole year with monthly meetings, two years with monthly meetings. Uh, it basically depends on what you're looking for. And if you get close to these people, then make it last as long as possible. Um, there needs to be accountability though and openness about goals and whether they're met or not. And so you're going to want to make sure that you're comfortable with the people in your mastermind because it's harder to be open with people who you aren't comfortable with. Um, at least it is for me. I, I, a lot of people think I'm an open book, but I'm very private about a lot of aspects of my life and especially about my business. And so, um, if I'm not comfortable with somebody, I'm not going to, you know, tell them what's going on basically. All right, Joe, are you skipping this one? No, no masterminding thoughts. <laughs> if I was going to write, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure what a mastermind group is, which should give you an idea of how many of them I am in. All right. Well, I'm not, I'm not in any official mastermind groups either. And I'm even, I'm actually a little jaded against the idea and not like what Andrew is talking about, but I came out of um, paying attention to a lot of podcasts and people in the internet business sphere and entrepreneurship sphere. And you would see like this week, I'm going to so-and-so's mastermind with Tony Robbins in the Caribbean, $30,000. And I'm going to learn tons of things and network with really important people. And then like two years later, that same person was starting their own mastermind group for $10,000 or something for their audience. And I'm like, so at mastermind groups, you learn that you should start your own mastermind group to make a whole bunch of money from people that, you know, and I know that that's not what Vail's hopefully talking about, but that has left me a little like, Ooh, okay, you know, I'm not interested in any of, of that stuff. And um, that's just a little being a little jaded about the entrepreneurship sphere, <laughs> you know, out there. I, I think authors in general, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not that bad. I feel like we're pretty good at like trying to look out for each other, especially people who are authors first and not just kind of in here because, oh, the Kindle Gold Rush, I can take advantage. And, you know, here's my course that you should buy and, you know, for $2,000. Um, I think most of the authors, uh, most of the people in the community doing courses and things are authors and really care and, uh, you know, have, you know, they're podcasting and have good reputations. And, um, you know, I, I know there's some romance, masterminds, sci-fi community has some of that stuff going on. I'm sure all the genres do. Um, but I will say, even though I've never done anything official like that, not yet, 
that I've definitely been in groups of people along the way that I found it really useful. Um, first was just kind of from the critique group. Uh, you know, it was an online writing workshop and, you know, you kind of gravitated toward people and became friends with people and, and started changing, doing critiques with them. And we were all trying to help each other improve the craft and swapping notes on like, you know, what agents are looking for high fantasy right now. And, you know, like what markets might be good for trying to submit your fiction short stories to. And I found that really useful. Now I'm in some Facebook groups and we occasionally talk about like what we're doing, what's working and what's not. And um, I think that's absolutely fine. I think if you're newer, not making a lot yet, that, you know, you there's a limit to how much you want to spend. And uh, I think Andrea sound like you're going to be kind of coaching people, uh, you know, maybe more than an informal kind of Facebook group. So, and everybody can decide what they want. You know, do you just want some other people that are at the same level and uh, learning things from them and chatting with them every week or month or whatever you decide. And I know people that, uh, I often, <laughs> did, I, did I say that? <laughs> um, I know people that do Skype calls like every couple times a week, month and like with none, nobody's making any money. They're just supportively talking to, with, to each other and talking about what's working. So there's, there's a whole lot of levels, you know, you can definitely, there's going to be a point where maybe you do want to spend X money and, and go on this cool trip and talk with like some high sellers and, and the genre. But I think there's nothing wrong with like just starting a Facebook group with some people in your genre, or it, it doesn't even have to be in your genre. I get a ton out of talking with my friends, the you know the beta readers I mentioned, even though they're not publishing. Uh, sometimes they have great suggestions because sometimes when you're in the industry, you're like the worst one to actually analytically sit back and be like, "Whoa, are you sure you want to spend twenty five thousand dollars or thirty five thousand dollars on advertising this month?" Because that seems like insanity, you know, but you're so in like the authors or other authors are doing this and I need to be doing this. And it can be helpful to have somebody just smart and not in the industry who can, you know, give you some suggestions. Um, and if nobody is inviting you yet to, you know, some secret Facebook group, you will start your own. That's how all these things get started. I have one for like women who write science fiction. And the only stipulation was like, are you a woman? Are you writing science fiction? Believe it or not, that was only about 20 people that I dug up at least hunting down on the Amazon rankings. And, you know, we chat about some of the sci-fi stuff. And, you know, it's fun to have little groups like that. So just start your own and kind of pick some people that, you know, think might join. Um, one of the nice things about the Facebook groups is it's pretty low. People will join even if you think they might not because there's no real commitment with that. And, but you might get some people out of that that are, you know, regulars and really useful. I'm in a couple where just people like they're always, they know they're like the Amazon is late, you know, five hours late on the payment or, you know, the rankings seem weird day. Something's going on. I never pay that much attention. So it's nice when other people do, and you can just see like, do I need to pay attention to this? No, no. Or maybe I do need to pay attention to this. So I guess that was more rambling than needed. It's a rambly night. We're recording in the evening and I have wine, so I can blame that. Um, do you guys have any more thoughts? Or Andrea, do you want to rebut anything I said? I didn't mean to like call you out on your, <laughs> on your group. The only thing I want to rebut is our notes. You have the words I often, <laughs> and then they don't go anywhere. And I was like, what, what? I feel like that's important. <laughs> oh no. I don't know what I was typing. That was when I was like trying to type answers to the questions and also figure out how I was going to do this Zoom hangout as Joe Lalo. No, um, I totally agree with you. I mean, there, I obviously 30,000. I mean, if I had 30,000 to spend on a cool... But Tony tennis, Robbins was there. Okay. And it was in the Caribbean. 
<laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm visioning mine more to be like, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, beneficial to our powwow where the intense one-on-one or and then then group like I'd be doing like maybe a 15 minutes of coaching one person and then group brainstorming where we just come up with ideas and I want them to be like writers that are similar to me, not necessarily have as many books, but you know, people who have the same goals I have, maybe um write the same genre and things like that because I want it to be something that we really that I don't know. I want to make and build relationships, you know, and then some of my clients, they don't want to pay my, my 200 an hour fee, which I don't blame them. That's why I charge 200 an hour so that not everybody will pick me up. But I mean, a mastermind would be more affordable in that case, you know? Right. And I think if you are getting some coaching from somebody more experienced, then it makes a lot of sense to pay, you know, <laughs> if you're just going for the honor of networking with other people, then, you know, you can decide if, if that's something that's worth it for you. But super, definitely value in finding other people. You know, you find like lifetime friends a lot of times in these sorts of things. So, and especially as writers, we often don't have people locally that get what we do. So it can be really good to make some friends, make some friends (laughs) online who are writers. Okay, moving on. Question from Ashley uh, about advertising during the holidays, particularly on Amazon and Facebook ads. Do you three double down or just realize that everyone is advertising more in November and December and allow your ads to take more of a back seat or something in between? Um, I don't adjust my ads during the holidays. I basically set them up to run well and then I just let them... I run them as usual. So like I do tweaks and things like that. And um, I, I don't even notice really if my ads do worse during the holidays. I haven't really had that happen. They they generally, I don't know, I'll have to look through it, but they do just as well and from what I've been able to see. But so I don't adjust for that, but I do push harder in January and February because those months for me historically have been my best months and I like to add fuel to the fire. Uh, as for me, I, I don't, I'm just going to be starting to do uh, like regular uh, ongoing ads. Um, it's on, it's on my to-do list for next year. Previously, I only really advertised heavily during releases. And therefore, I, in order to avoid the expensive advertising times of the holiday season, I don't typically do releases during the holiday season. Uh, January and February are common release times for me. And in the, in the early days... Whereas you didn't make any money, uh, any extra money during the holiday season on ebooks, you did make extra money on uh, uh, ebooks in January and February when people with their nice new e-readers were starting to fill them up. But that's not so much the case anymore. We sort of hit saturation on that particular consumer good. So yeah, that's that's sort of how I handle things. I usually back off on ad spend during the holidays. I think last year, I don't think I was spending anything at all. I just go in my writing cave and start working on the next series. So it seems to be that I'm wrapping things up around that time and getting ready to launch something new. Uh, I've also, I've launched a series right after Christmas, but I've never, I wouldn't launch a new series this time of year. You know, I would just wait and hold it and do a rapid release later. Um, but yeah, ad spend, it usually costs more for ads. Presumably the Big publishers are thinking, wow, this is the time everybody's going to buy books to give gifts. But that doesn't really happen with ebooks. Nobody gifts ebooks because that's a lame gift. <laughs> you know, usually you want something physical that you can wrap and put under the tree. So you'd be paying more on ads and probably not getting anything more out of it. Um, yeah, I guess that's about all I have to say on that. I feel like I was going to say something else, but I've said so much tonight that it's really not necessary. <laughs> Um, Ashley also asked, what do you consider a good CTR on Amazon ads? 
Um, for me, Amazon ad, well, first of all, click, CTR is click through rate for people who don't know. Uh, I try to be mindful of when there's things that come along that might not be universally known. Uh, I don't pay attention to click through rates specifically for Amazon ads or for really all ads. But when I'm actually hardcore doing the math on this stuff, I work it out based on cost per click and calibrate the cost per click by how much I'm likely to make from read through and stuff. So I don't care too much about the click through rate as long as the clicks are cheap enough. Uh, and that goes across the board. However, I have been doing a fair amount. I took a break during November to do NaNoWriMo, but I've been doing a fair amount of uh, research and practicing and experimenting in BookBub. And David Gogren recommends aiming for a click-through rate of 2% or higher when you're testing. So, But that's it's going to be lower on Amazon almost always. BookBub is, is pretty darn high on the click-through rate. Um, so my husband runs my Amazon ads. Uh, I think I've said that before. And I asked him about this and he says he doesn't focus on the click-through rate. He watches the ACOS, even though it's historically and not usually very accurate. And most everybody says not to pay attention to it. Um, he says it's accurate enough for him to get a decent idea. He said, if your ACOS is 1000%, then your ad sucks. And if your ACOS is 2%, which we have an ad right now that's running at 2% ACOS, then your ad is pretty good. And then he says between 70 and 100, I mean, you can still you can still watch it and just see if it's the first ser- first in a series, you know, if your read through is doing well. Um, and like and then he also watches my daily royalties, which is helpful with those person series and read throughs. I also don't look too much at CTR for Amazon ads. I actually went in and looked because we had this question. My very best one, which is targeting myself, like as a defensive ad, I started doing that after we talked about it from the Nink conference, you know, it was 0.75 it was the CTR. And that's like on my own name. So don't expect anything super high. You're competing with everything else on that page. And you know, gasp, surprise, probably they went to that page to buy the book on that page, you know, rather than looking at the ads. So, you know, you're doing pretty good at all if you get any attention. You know, I've definitely got a lot lower ones. I, I had quite a few that were like around 0.5, uh, half a percent. And then some that were like 0.03. So that's point, I don't know, 0.03%, not even 1%. And, but You'll also find that the broader you're targeting, the more impressions you're getting, the lower that CTR is going to go down, or you're going to be spending about $35,000 pretty quick. Um, and but the you know the more narrow, like when I'm targeting my name, obviously it's going to be the highest of all the stuff I have going on. But not to be discouraged by CTR, I actually have mentioned before. I think that I used to be run content websites and made my money from affiliate links and also from. Uh, Google AdSense and Google AdSense on most of my sites is way more profitable than the affiliate thing. So I would like um, put the ads in such a place like the upper left corner and take away the border and like blend it into the content. So people were like, you know, it always said Google ads or whatever, but I would try to make it so my click through rate would be as good as it could because then I made more money. And even then, you know, I got to like maybe 3% on some pages that were basically just text and maybe only two ads and a couple of links in the content. So, you know, just assume people are there for other reasons. But uh, I, like Andrew was saying, the ACOS is more important. And I do look at that too. Um, it's really hard to be below 100% on a 99 cent book, which a lot of my book ones are. Uh, I mean, you can do it if you're really targeted. But as soon as you say, I want the whole space opera category, you know, and I want these five other sci-fi subcategories. Yeah. 
is going to be way up there. So you have to decide, you know, if that's something you're interested in or if you just want to really make sure you're getting a good uh, return, which takes more time to get a good return. So you're kind of weighing how much time do I want to fiddle with these ads and versus how much am I making from them. So it's, it's a situation. <laughs> Next question is from Tristy. How can an author stand out in the middle of the sea of other authors? Okay. Um, the artistic answer is to write whatever you're most passionate about. There's a quote from Neil Gaiman I mentioned a lot, which is, other people can write other books better than I can, but nobody can write a Neil Gaiman book better than I can. So uh, if, you, if you really focus on writing something you're really enthusiastic about and that you like best, then no matter what book you write is going to be unique to you and therefore it will stand out. Now, that is the artistic, uh, in my notes, I have it as the chicken soup for the soul answer. Uh, more practically, it's a lot less, you know, uh, encouraging and, and more, you know, figure it out. And that's, you're going to want a, a book cover that is genre appropriate and it catches the eye. And ideally, that means someone will click on it. Once they click on it, you're going to want a short, punchy book description, short, punchy, whatever. You're going to want a good book description. Uh, mine tend to be pretty long uh, and shorter, punchier ones tend to work better. But uh, once they read that, ideally, they'll buy the book and then they'll read that wonderful standout novel that you wrote that's so wonderful uh, and hopefully gets get, you know, sunk in and, and, and addicted. But so, yeah, like the happy version is whatever you like best will stand out. And the realistic version is you're going to have to really polish it until it shines. And Tristy is my editor and she gets my advice privately for free. <laughs> But she's absolutely fantastic. Her books are really good. She's um, been doing this for a very long time. Um, but Tristy, you know what your strengths are. And um, I'm, I'll tell you those again. Uh, you're fantastic at cozy mysteries and things like that. And I would say write to your strengths. Um, you have some absolutely fantastic... Uh, your Western romances are really good. Um, we'll get into that more one-on-one. Um, -on -one. I want to hear what Lindsay has to say, though. All these specific uh, tips there for the Q and A. I just assume that if one person has the question, a thousand other people. Do we have that many listeners yet? Maybe seven other people. Yes, yes, we have a, at least a thousand now. We're around like four thousand listeners. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, so yeah, I would also agree that you know, kind of, you'll figure out what your strengths are as a writer. Just lean into that. For me, I love doing characters. I love doing banter. So I just set myself plots where there's going to be like I will almost never write a story where the characters by themselves for a long time because I can't do banter unless they're by themselves. They get Ascension Sword if they're by themselves. So there can be banter or in the new series, Ascension Magical Silver Tiger. So there's, you know, realize what your strengths are and what kind of makes you unique as a writer. And then it becomes a little less important with the, the other stuff. Like it's in, it's it's always great to have good covers and stuff like Joe was saying. You know, do the best you can, but it's not so much about like I got to be above and beyond all the other authors out there. It's about you know being good enough to be found, doing enough marketing that you get your stuff found, and then being the one person that can write stories like you write, like Neil Gaiman <laughs> can write Neil Gaiman stories. Um, you know, and having your own style and voice that people love, or at least some people. I think one of the biggest compliments you can get is when a reader says. They would have known it was your book, even if your name wasn't on the front. And you don't have to be everybody's favorite author. You just have to be enough people's favorite author. But the goal is to become somebody's favorite author, you know? And, and that's, 
you know, through developing your unique voice and giving something that they maybe struggle to find out there in the sea of authors. All right, we might just do a couple more and not necessarily do that last one that's really long <laughs> today. Uh, do you have any... This is from Lana. Lana, do you have any predictions for 2020? Anything indie related from genres to marketing? Um, my, my official notes on this are not really. Uh, I, I, like, I have found that my predictions in the past have been... in like. I never go out on a limb with my predictions. My so I didn't even really make predictions this year. My predictions are I will work harder on my books and uh, try to improve my marketing. <laughs> like that is what my prediction is. What I can do. So uh, all I could say is that uh, if I'm going to give a real prediction, it's that things are going to continue on the trajectory they are, which is to say they'll get a little bit harder. The market will get a little bit more competitive, and we're going to have to get a little bit more clever in order to to continue to succeed. Dang it, Joe, you weren't supposed to give an actual prediction. <laughs> um, so I've only ever done like one prediction and that was back in 2012 and I predicted that ebooks would get bigger and guess what? It was right. <laughs> um, yeah, I like, I'm more into the, the personal, you know, how, how am I doing and my predictions for myself and things like that. My, my own, you know, my own series, my own world. All right. Yeah. I've never, we've done a couple of prediction shows on the old podcast and I don't think we were ever right. <laughs> so I think it's more like your bias is you're like, this is what I hope is going to happen this year, but I have no data to back that up. Um, as far as predicting uh, genres, uh, you know, I would actually subscribe or um, at least go check out the genre report you're interested in from Alex Newton at Kalytics. Uh, and we'll try to get him on the show this year too. Um, He's kind of the guy who's going to, like, I think he said, like, hey, uh, you know, Urban Fantasy Academy stuff, you know, like a year ago. He's like, yep, we're seeing that. Um, so it's hard to predict something before it starts to become a trend. But as an indie author, if you can write fairly quickly and you see that something is becoming a trend, you have the time to, you know, jump on there if it's something you're interested in. Um, just as a random prediction for marketing, I think we're already starting to see some backlash and like disenchantment. Uh, with all this advertising and how much money it seems like you have to spend right now to um, really like get into those top 100s on Amazon. So I think we're going to see more people either experimenting and doing out-of-the-box stuff or just going back to some of the older proven methods uh, that maybe have been forgotten as everybody's jumped on board to um, do Amazon ads. And that was one thing I was going to say about the holiday thing that I had forgotten was that if you turn everything off for a month or two and just be like, okay, I'm not launching anything new right now. Do I really need to be spending all this? And then see, you know, like how, does, because you might be surprised. It might be like it confirms, yeah, everything goes way down. Sales, big slump when you turn off all the advertising. But I think you might also find it might not go down as much as you thought. So that it's maybe good every once in a while to turn everything off for a few weeks and check that just to see. All right. I think we're going to do one last question here, maybe. This is from James. Um, just started listening to the new podcast. Great stuff as always. Thank you, James. Uh, in your interview with Andrea, she mentioned download bonuses. How are they different from reader magnets? Can your reader magnet also be your download bonus, especially if you're distributing the magnet through BookFunnel? Can you mention your download bonus in your book's Amazon description? Uh, I'm going to defer to Andrea for a, for a more complete answer on this because I don't do download bonuses, but uh, uh, I would I would call a download bonus like a goodie that uh, that you give somebody as like a treat. Uh, 
whereas a, a reader magnet uh, is more of a thing that funnels people into your series. Like that would be that's how I would use it. Um, okay, so a reader magnet is something that you give to your your list to get them to subscribe. You know, so something exclusive. A download bonus is something you want to use to get people who are subscribed to your list and other readers to download a book. And so your readers in your list already have your reader magnet, so you're going to want your download bonus to be different. Um, just you know, you want those people. It's basically because once you get them in your list, you want them to actually go on and buy. And so that's why I use a download bonus. Um, I don't think you should mention your download bonus in your book's Amazon description, mainly because a download bonus is going to be something that's temporary. It's a, a promotional event that's, you know, doesn't last forever. Um, let's see. So that's how they're different from reader magnets. Let's see. Download bonus. Can your reader magnet also be your download bonus? Uh, let's see. I think I answered it right. Right. Yeah, I think in that interview, you were mentioning like, and if they bought it in the first two weeks or something, they got a bonus. Was that sounds good to me? I haven't done that either. I would just say that, yeah, your reader magnet's probably the one thing that's like most enticing that's going to get people who read the book to sign up to your mailing list. And, and that's the main purpose to get them on your list. Uh, and that might be the prequel novella, or it might be the POV scenes from that enigmatic dude that never gets a POV in the main series. I'm reading the Kate Daniels books right now. I know how she had bonus, like current POV stuff that was a, a bonus. So that, that might be the kind of thing for your um, reader magnet. But well, I guess we're, we'll just go ahead and mention um, Raphael's comments here. Because uh, I'm going to just refer you to somebody else's podcast, <laughs> Raphael. Uh, but the question was, you know, he wants to know more about publishing on foreign Kindle stores. Uh, do we do this? Best practices regarding production of an inter international version of a book? Is there a launch strategy for publishing in multiple languages, countries? Pros and cons of publishing the one title at the same time in different languages? How profitable is it to publish abroad? Which countries and languages are most profitable? Uh, any concerns with taxes? So most indie authors have really struggled to make it worthwhile to do translations. Uh, you know, it's thousands of dollars. You not only need to hire somebody to do the translation, but you also need to hire an editor to edit the translation. And then you need to be able to market in that language. The Probably the one time when it might make sense... Well, there's probably a couple times. But if you are like bilingual and you can actually do the marketing and stuff in that language and you can read the translated book and you know like is this good <laughs> you know, is everything is this a quality translation then it make, may make more sense for you also if there is a market uh in that language for your genre uh, i know germany would probably be where i would try if i was going to go do it on my own just because i have a big readership of my english language uh fantasy over there and, um, but I'm going to refer you to Joanna Penn's recent episode on translating into Germany and into German and a lot of the challenges involved. And I'll put the episode in the show notes, but it's, it's actually just, uh, she published on November 22nd, 2019. And she kind of went into a lot more of this stuff because she also did translations a few years ago and found that she, she didn't like how it went and backed off for a while, but now she's getting back into it. So you may, if you haven't already listened to that, you may find it very useful. Okay, guys, I feel like I talked a lot. I'm like really tired. <laughs> it's nighttime. It's bedtime. Do you have any final tips for readers or anything you want to say in wrapping up? You didn't talk a lot. You read questions. So that made sound like you talked a lot for you. <laughs> <laughs> My mouth is dry. I'm like, gosh, I need to hydrate with something besides wine, apparently. 
Um, no, I think, I think we did good. I, um, <laughs> pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> good we, job, you guys. Excellent good. episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Joe, do you have any comments? <laughs> uh, no, we, we did a good job. We answered the question <laughs> and we, uh, like, I admitted to ignorance on things I didn't know about, <laughs> which is important. <laughs> you don't want to hear advice on something that I don't know. You could have given advice on masterminds and just, you know, made it up as you went. (laughs) Absolutely. But I didn't. Honesty. (laughs) All right. Well, let's just go ahead and wrap it up then. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. We've got some interviews coming up the rest of the month. So hopefully they will be useful to you. In the meantime, please visit sixfigureauthors.com with the number six for the episode show notes to leave a comment or to ask a question for a future show. Or if you want to join the 11 other people besides us in the Facebook group, search for Six Figure Authors there, or I'm also going to put the link that will show up in the show notes so you can just pop right over to the group and you can also ask questions there. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Don't. I got to stop this. Hang on. I got to find the button. The tribbles are in charge of the captain's.